Hello and welcome to the MJ Cast. I'm Jamin Bull and I'm here with my co-host Q for this Vindication Day special episode. 14 years ago, Michael Jackson walked out of a Santa Maria courtroom an innocent man, a vindicated man. Each year, this is not a day we celebrate, but one in which we seek to educate through documenting the stories of key people involved in the trial. This year, we've seen Michael's name dragged through the mud again with salacious and false sex abuse allegations in which Wade Robson and James Safechuck have claimed that Michael used Neverland Valley Ranch as an attraction to lure young boys. So we decided to reach out to a man who experienced and documented nearly every corner of the ranch, Emmy-nominated filmmaker Larry Nimmer. Larry was a key component of the defence team in Michael's mid-2000s criminal trial, with Judge Melville deciding against the jury being able to physically visit Neverland. Larry was hired by Michael and his team to film, document and narrate almost every area of the ranch so that the jury could experience it with as much detail as possible in the courtroom. We're grateful to have Larry Nimmer on the show with us today so that we can document his story and learn more about Neverland Larry, welcome to the MJ Cast. Where are you Skyping in from? All right, that's me. I'm in California, 45 minutes from Neverland. And part of why I got the involvement in it is I'm a local filmmaker and there. Michael's attorneys hired me. I'm not that far away. Okay, and, and we understand also it's your birthday today. So happy birthday. Well, thank you very much. I'm 68 today. Which I'm shocked by because you don't look 68. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And that's one thing I like about Michael. I get to keep the childlike nature. Uh, that's what he always encouraged. And so I'm 68 years old. Yeah, but I'm only 42 and a half years in my heart. That's, that's so true. It makes such a difference if you keep that in your heart, for sure. Right. So we, we do like to give people a lot of context when we interview them. So we'd like to ask you about your early career. What led you to making documentaries? Where did you grow up? Where's Larry Nimmer from? (laughs) Okay. I'm from West Los Angeles. My dad was a professor of law at UCLA and an attorney, the world authority actually in copyright law, and also freedom of speech expert. But I got a photography kit when I was 10 years old for Christmas Even though our more serious holiday was Hanukkah, I'm Jewish, but I got the lesser presents for Christmas, but it turned out into the big deal of my life. And from that, my dad was an amateur filmmaker and I became an amateur filmmaker, went to Cal Berkeley, studied photography and filmmaking some, lived in San Francisco. I worked in TV news as a CBS TV station, first as the news librarian and then as a public affairs producer. And I got to use the equipment in the evening. And in the evening, I would edit music videos on their equipment. We weren't allowed to touch it during the daytime. And then based on that music videos, I had a number on MTV. I got into documentary filmmaking, informational filmmaking, and that kind of thing. That's a great uh, summary of your story um, leading up to you making documentaries. What was the first major documentary that you worked on? or TV documentary? It might have been the history of Christian Rome. I had a client that I produced Christian documentaries for. Most of what I do is not a full-blown documentary. I, I do everything at the very low end to weddings and depositions, and then the high end to uh, feature documentaries. So, And I'm also a one-man band in that most of what I do, I do all myself. I write, edit, produce, shoot, so forth. 
I'm not a you know a huge documentary producer, but um, doing okay, making a living out of it. What do you love about documentaries as a form of cinema? Part of my mission statement is to give people a platform to express themselves. And I get to do that a lot in documentaries and other things I do. But I like to make people look good, assuming they deserve to look good. And I like digesting information and making it palatable, interesting, and clear to the public, which is kind of a fun challenge. But uh, media tools are so different now than when I started in the 70s. Sometimes I shoot on my iPhone now, and uh, things are so accessible and easy. So uh, that's some of what I like about documentaries. Just thinking about documentaries as an art form that you love, are there some filmmakers or particular documentaries that have inspired you in your own journey? Good question. Not so much. I'm thinking right now of the documentary, I forget the name of it, of the brothers who lived isolated in a New York apartment and their parents didn't let them out and then they finally let them out. That was really interesting. Was that the Wolf Pack? Yeah, exactly. The Wolf Pack. And Part of what I liked about that is they produced it themselves some, uh, as well as an outside producer, but they recorded themselves. And I like to develop tools for when I make documentaries that people can record themselves and I can use some of that footage. But one of the neat things about producing now is there's so much footage on the internet that you can use in your documentaries to help tell whatever story you're telling. And coming from copyright, I understand the legalities that you are allowed to use other footage under the fair use doctrine of the copyright law. So often when I make projects now, like I did on my Michael Jackson documentaries, I got a certain amount of footage just off the internet. Well, then I shot a lot of the footage at Neverland Ranch, but I'm doing a new art series now and certain things that people describe, I can just get it off the internet. You've been nominated for a range of Emmy Awards. Could you tell us a bit about that, please? I was nominated for a couple of uh, documentaries about uh, Christian superheroes. (laughs) One was... uh, Tony Melendez, who played guitar with his feet, he had no arms. Another was on a uh, a nun that helped uh, poor and disadvantaged people. I sometimes kind of exaggerate my Emmy Awards because um, <laughs> they're not, for one thing, I didn't actually get the award, I was just nominated. And secondly, they were actually local Emmys for the Los Angeles area, which is a competitive market, but they weren't national Emmys. But, you know, just to get ahead in life, you got to, you know, put your best foot forward. And so I made sure to tell people I'm Emmy nominated. Yeah, that's impressive nonetheless. You know, thinking about Michael Jackson, we'd love to ask you, as you were sort of growing up and, and also an adult filmmaking, what were your perceptions of Michael Jackson before you got to work with him? Yeah, it's kind of important because I didn't have any strong perceptions. I was just kind of open for when I worked with him to find out what he was about. I certainly knew of him, and my impression was that he was very talented. I didn't necessarily think he was a molester, and I didn't really think about it. His music I liked. I liked Thriller. I liked Bad and some of his songs, but I I didn't pay attention in a big way to his music. I remember seeing on TV the uh, interview with Oprah and seeing Neverland and thinking to myself, wow, that'd be so cool if I could ever go and actually see it. And then when I did see it, it, it looked quite different than it did on the camera, but still very impressive. But my son, when he was seven or eight, he was really into dancing to Michael Jackson music. And I I used to video him doing that. And it was just a lot of fun. And then when I got the call 
to go to Neverland, I just, you know, was blown away and very happy to oblige. Had you done much other courtroom related work before joining Michael's defense team? Yes. As a matter of fact, I have an expertise in making legal graphics, particularly the video part of legal graphics. I want, my, my main company is Nimmer Pictures, documentaries and such, but I also have a company, Nimmer Legal Graphics, where I make demonstrative evidence for attorneys. And video-wise, it's a, a day in the life videos. I make a number of those for people that have been hurt in some way or another and show what their how their life's affected. I've done scene videos. I've done computer animation, recreation of things, various things that are used in the courtroom. So uh, that's largely why uh, Bob Sanger, one of Michael's attorneys, contacted me. Now, Larry, I'm a bit of a nerd. And as I've been reading some of your previous interviews, I've, that's kind of piqued my interest, this whole computer animation thing. What's the deal there? What, what do you actually create for the people in the courtroom to Well, in one case, a young man, I think he must have been 16 or 17 in Long Beach, California, was in junior lifeguards and he was told to swim into the ocean around a buoy and back. And as he ran into the ocean, there was a little berm and he hit it the wrong way and he fell over and he knocked his head and became a quadriplegic. We represented him. He was suing the city of Long Beach for an unsafe condition because they knew about the berm, and but they still had the kids go in. And so in that case, we had described to us how deep the berm was, what the height of the kid was, and we created a computer animation of a kid running into the ocean and how he fell and so forth. So that just kind of showed the dynamics of it. Uh, in another case, I represented a Japanese client who made uh, some medicine that had tryptophan in it. And some people just got sleepy from it, but some people died from it and they were being sued. So I went to Japan and documented their factory and showed how the product came from their factory to consumers in America. And it was an animated thing of seeing uh, people, you know, uh, cylinders mixing chemicals and then ships moving and store shelves and so forth. I just find that sort of stuff so fascinating. I mean, and I, and I suppose the point of doing all that is to, to give the jury a really clear understanding of things that they couldn't be there to actually see. Right. And in the case of Neverland, Uh, Michael's attorneys wanted the jurors to be able to come out to Neverland to see it for themselves, to see it wasn't some nefarious, mean-spirited, bad place. But the judge wasn't going to let him go to Neverland, but he said, you know, if you have a video, well, he implied that if you had a video, you could show it in the courtroom and narrate it. So... Uh, so that's what I did. I, I made a virtual tour for the jurors as if one was visiting Neverland on a typical day. Got it. Got it. And let's just go back a little bit because we're going to get to the, the ins and outs of the trial in, in a short while. But do you have any memories or recollections even before you started working with the team when the allegations broke in 2003? Did you have any initial thoughts? No, I don't believe I did. Not that I recall. I just kind of had an open mind. I didn't know one way or the other. And had you had recollections of the previous 93 allegations from yes, news coverage? I, right. I, I did have recollections of that. And then as I delved into it more, well, as I put in my documentary where there's smoke, there's often fire. So I could see how one would think because he settled in 93 that he must have been guilty in 2005. But as I learned, he wasn't. But I, I didn't really think of it too much. Uh, not being a super MJ fan, which I am now, I didn't think about it much. 
So if you could please talk to us about how you actually got hired by Michael's team. You mentioned earlier the name Bob Sanger. Right. So um, I got a call one day uh, from a paralegal in Bob Sanger's office. My wife at the time took the call because I wasn't in. And then when I got back home, she said uh, someone called uh, from Bob's. I think she I think I think the paralegal said we represent Michael Jackson and we'd like Larry to call us about it. So I think I knew ahead of time. So anyway, when I called the paralegal back, she had heard good things about me, she said, and uh, she wanted me to give her what my price range is and the cost for doing this, that and the other. So I developed a bid and I, I probably faxed it to her at the time. Then she said, yeah, uh, we'd like you to help us. And there are various things we want you to do. Once I was on board, uh, I think I talked to Bob Sanger on the phone. And then Bob Sanger said, "Uh, meet me at Neverland. Messero was there too when I came. When I um, arrived at Neverland uh, with my camera equipment and all, uh, the guard had me sign a a 10-page form that I wouldn't videotape at all inside Neverland, uh, which I signed, which is just kind of funny because I was there meeting his attorneys to (laughs) videotape. So I felt like I, I had a pass on that one. Then they, they, in the golf carts, they showed me around Neverland, basically saying, you know, this is what people often see. And uh, so they took me around the, uh, the house, inside the house, outside the zoo, the amusement park, uh, the outbuildings, the guest cottages, etc. Actually, I didn't go in the guest cottage to begin with. I, I was told that's uh, out of bounds. And, um, and then I, it was actually because Michael was staying in the guest cottage, apparently, because he didn't want to go back to his bedroom that they'd kind of desecrated. And so while I went to Neverland uh, quite a few times over a period of a month, I never saw Michael actually at Neverland once looking through the window when he was having dinner. But I, I saw him actually in the courtroom, which I can get to later. But that's kind of the sequence of events. I was told, you know, shoot footage documenting it. You don't need to record any audio because you're going to just narrate the video on the stand. And so I, I didn't record audio. It was interesting, though, there at Neverland because there are little speakers in the grass with Disney-type music coming out of them, uh, kind of like you, you see at Disneyland. I also didn't see Michael's kids, although I often heard them upstairs or so forth and saw their toys and so forth around the place. I met them later on. but uh, So that's a little bit about how it came together. I can follow up on anything. Uh, yeah, we, we do have a few questions around that to dive a little bit deeper. That's great, though. Thank you. Um, why do you think that the judge, Judge Melville, wouldn't allow the jury to visit Neverland? I don't know why, but it, it might have been because it'd be expensive to hire the buses and the guards and this, that, and the other. Uh, but frankly, I don't know. Another one of my jobs was to work with Tom Messero looking at all the trial exhibit videos, and he would tell me what he wanted cut in and out of the final version we played in the courtroom. So we looked at all the sheriff's raid footage together to decide what to show. We looked at the rebuttal video of uh, Gavin Arbizo and the family uh, making a tape. We looked at the outtakes to the Bashir documentary together, some of the Bashir documentary possibly some other things too that don't come to mind right now. Wow, that's a lot more work than maybe some people knew about. We've we've got some questions relating to that later actually. Back to Neverland, I'm just curious. You said you were there for nearly a month film or over a month filming. Roughly how many hours did you capture because Neverland as a lot of people know 
wouldn't really be classed as a small place. Right. I shot about nine hours of film. Each time I was there, I was there six or seven hours. They'd often feed us, which was nice. So I shot about nine hours. I never thought at the time I'd make a documentary. I was told by one of the attorneys that I I couldn't show this footage to anybody. But later, uh, Messero and others, in a sense, gave me permission to use the footage. But that's how much I, I shot actually nine hours of tape time. Now, let's dive into Neverland as a place. Talk to us about the staff there. You said you had quite a few interactions with the staff. What what were they like? The staff in the house uh, were uh, mainly Hispanic, the cooks, the housekeepers, and so forth. They were all very friendly, very helpful, very quiet, easygoing. Grace Rawamba helped me too. She was the kid's nanny at the time. And when I was going through the house videotaping, she was kind of my keeper. I guess she followed me around to make sure I didn't get into mischief. There was also the main office, Joel Marcus, the property manager. He and a a couple of women in the, uh, the office, I forget their names right now. They were also very nice, very businesslike, very much to the point. Uh, They didn't necessarily fill me in all the time what was going on at Neverland. Like, I didn't know if I had to get out by a certain time. Sometimes things came up at the last moment, and they didn't want me there and tell me time to go or whatever. Uh, But everybody was very kind and easygoing. I've been there more recently with Sebastian Broussard. I'm trying to remember what year I went there, but it was like two or three years after Michael died, and it was a special visit that Tom Barak gave to him, and, and he invited me. And then the staff, there was a young, like a 22-year-old young Hispanic woman with her mom, who I think was the housekeeper, and they gave us a tour. Tom Barak was not there at the time, but he had his furniture in the house and so forth and around. But um, everybody was very nice, easygoing. The people Michael had around him over uh, his life Some of them were kind of questionable. I didn't see much of that, except for I did see that, I must say, with uh, one of his attorneys. I'm trying to remember his name. It was kind of let go. Um, But maybe I don't need to get into that. Was his name Brian (laughs) Oxman, by any chance? (laughs) Yeah. 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 We've heard some interesting things about him. (laughs) Yeah, he was being kind of, well, uh, should I tell my Brian Oxman story? Absolutely. We got a few on record already. So, <laughs> Okay, good. Well, so one of the first times I went to Bob Sanger's office opposite the courthouse, he, he had a temporary office opposite the court that the media never found out about. And Michael went there some and they to go to the courthouse, which was just across the street, they often would get in their car and come out the parking lot. So no one knew that they were right across the street. But anyway, one time I went there, one of the first times, and I think Bob Sanger said something like, Larry, I'm kind of busy right now. Um, I'll maybe help you in a while. But uh, Brian, why don't you see if you can help Larry? So, so, so Brian gets on his phone and starts going through the photos and videos he shot at Neverland and starts telling me, well, you could use this photo and that video. And, and to me, that wasn't really very relevant. I needed to shoot it and see it for myself. And most of the photos were of his kid's uh, birthday party around a pool, not Michael's pool. And then I saw Brian have a couple of tantrums in the office. Uh, I forget what they were about. Uh, I saw some of those tantrums on the news, too, for that matter. 
so he was a little uneven in terms of his representation from my experience. Although I've met him personally, he's always very friendly. I've seen him at a couple MJ events. He's always friendly and knowledgeable and professional when I see him in that capacity. Uh, Larry, you mentioned Neverland in reference to comparison to Disneyland before with music in the gardens and around the grounds. What was Neverland like as a place? What were your impressions of Neverland? Because you also mentioned that you saw it and were impressed by it in the Oprah special in 93. One impression was it wasn't as fantastic and Disneyland-like in person. I mean, there were some aspects of it that certainly were, but it was kind of the rolling grounds, the house itself. A lot of it, the estate was not changed from the owner before him, a guy named Bones, I believe, who was a golf course developer. And it, it feels like a house on a golf course, some the rolling lawns and so forth, and the old Tudor home. The home's just kind of an old Tudor home. It's not a Disney-type home. And a lot of the furnishings in it are very kind of fancy antiques types of things Michael liked. But then there'd be, you know, playful things, too, throughout. It's kind of was like a Beverly Hills mansion, but a huge one. But then aspects of the unexpected and the childlike, uh, like the train station and the arcade building and uh, the the zoo and uh, the amusement park and so forth. And Michael's bedroom, for that matter, all the pinball machine and all. But otherwise, it just seemed kind of like a Beverly Hills mansion. When I, um, I mean, I watched your documentary recently and I, I really, really enjoyed it. And we'll get to that a bit later. But in there, you talk a little bit about how different the property looked or the house looked in the police raid footage compared to when you got there and saw it. Can you talk to us about the differences in how the house was set up and organized? In the police raid, it's unclear, but I believe a lot of it where it looks just so disheveled and all, it's because the police had just gone through it and looking for incriminating stuff and just tossed everything topsy-turvy and made it look like it was a pigsty. But my understanding is that was mainly because they had done that themselves. Messero and Sanger wanted to, well, we're concerned that the police footage would look like, if you see police marching around with frowns on their faces, it looks like, oh, there must be something to be concerned about. And as I show in my documentary, there's one scene where a police officer walks into Michael's bathroom and he has his hand on his gun, like ready to mm. shoot down the bad guy. And... Uh, and I understand that that's kind of standard police or, or sheriff's procedure, but it wouldn't look good to the jurors and for good reason. And so it was reasonable to have a viewpoint of somebody else that went there. And and they made an effort to, to have the house looking presentable. But my impression was they always had the house looking presentable. They had, you know, he had quite a big staff and quite a big overhead uh, to keep it up nice. And, you know, he had so many people coming through there. Uh, visitors to the outer parts of the estate as well as in the house. So it made sense. Did you get the impression, though, that Michael maybe was a little bit of a hoarder? Well, maybe. not. Uh, I mean, he could have, he can afford to like things. He didn't necessarily keep a lot of stuff that he didn't want. There was one storage room where it stored books, and it's often where he read. And, uh, you know, you might think he's a hoarder there, but I, nothing wrong with keeping a lot of books. I think he had 20,000 books overall. Uh, But no, I mean, he liked collecting things, but it didn't seem necessarily compulsive or unhealthy. One thing that people say who claim Michael is guilty 
is that he had a warning alarm system in his bedroom. And then when people would come into his bedroom, it would like make a noise and alert him that somebody was coming in. They used that as some kind of evidence that he was a child molester. When you experienced his house, did you notice this? And what were your thoughts on that? My clients, the attorneys, wanted me to make a special video about the alarm. So the alarm went off when someone came into his downstairs bedroom suite. It seemed like the alarm went off to warn him if if someone was coming and, you know, it makes sense he'd want to know. I don't believe he had any surveillance videos throughout the house or the grounds. You know, the sheriffs at one point said he had all this stuff. But so he had an alarm to know when people are coming into his bedroom. I don't mind, I don't blame him, you know, knowing how George Harrison and others were attacked in their bedroom. But the alarm test I made, they wanted to show that, uh, well, Gavin Arvizo's brother's uh, star claimed he snuck into the bedroom, went up the steps and saw Michael masturbating his brother Gavin. So we wanted to show that if, if he had snuck in, Michael would have heard him, heard the alarm go off. And so it wouldn't be snuck up on. And so basically, I put my camera over Michael's bed. I had the cleaning lady come in the downstairs suite entrance, and I recorded the sound of the alarm, what it would have sounded like in Michael's upstairs bedroom. And uh, so to me, that was all in the up and up. You know, often we talk to people about Michael's house, and, and in the past, people have said, well, to understand Michael's house, you need to know how big his bedroom was comparatively. Would you please be able to give us sort of a detailed description of the bedroom, how big it was, how, you know, it was multi-story, wasn't it? I would call it a bedroom suite. I didn't see the whole thing, actually, but the main part of the bedroom where his bed is, is actually very tiny. My wife's with me here. How big would you say is our living room? I, I would say is about the size of his bedroom, which is only maybe 12 feet by 15 feet. Uh Okay, 18 by 25 is what my, but that, which isn't a huge space. And that, that was where his bed was and he had his, his TV screen and his, his things all around him. But in addition to that regular size room, there were at least two bathrooms downstairs. There was a few closets. There was a downstairs game room with pinball machines and things. So the, the suite was rather large, but the bedroom itself was just kind of modest size. It was kind of like a, a lookout upstairs and with a beautiful view of the grounds from up there. And, and you went into the downstairs area, right? Some of it, yeah. Some of it. And because often I hear people talking about that there was actually other beds downstairs. So it's like when you think about Michael's bedroom suite, it, it's sort of like a mini like apartment. I didn't see any beds downstairs, but I didn't, like I went in one of the bathrooms, not the other, and I can't really remember why I, I didn't necessarily go in all of them. I think I, I mainly went into places where I was told this is where guests normally go, and so I went there. Uh, there might have been some beds downstairs, but not that I know of. Another thing detractors like to say is Michael had art books in his library with questionable or perhaps they, they claim criminal content in them. Could you describe Michael's home library? You already mentioned a, a sort of storage reading room that he also used. And were you instructed at all to sort of film specific books to give context or to help clarify anything for the trial? No, I wasn't. I knew the accusations and I knew if I came across something incriminating, 
I guess I would have asked my attorney, should I film this or not? But I certainly didn't come across anything incriminating. He, he, as I recall, there were three main areas where his books were. In the actual bedroom upstairs in his bedroom suite, there were some books. And as, as I recall, they were in novels and books about the film industry and a lot of DVDs and VHSs at the time and uh, a lot of figurines and so forth. Then there is the formal library downstairs and those were kind of like gilt-edged books you'd see in a castle or something. And maybe they were first edition type books and so forth. And, it, and those books didn't look like anything one would normally read or not, but it was kind of like for, for looks, for show, those books. And then there was the storage room where I was told he actually reads and I showed in my documentary. And there, it was quite a variety of books, a lot of books about the film industry, about the music industry, a lot of novels, a lot of art books. I didn't see any art books that were inappropriate, obviously. And I believe at the trial, while the other side tried to make a big deal out of it, the only thing they came up with was a few Playboys in uh, Michael's suit, uh, briefcase, which is uh, certainly not much, and it shows kind of his, his orientation. I didn't see anything incriminating at all. Afterwards, actually, I, I was told that there's a statue on the grounds that, like, of a naked person. And I was never told one way or the other whether to film it or not. I never noticed it, but I remember hearing afterwards there there was such a thing. And actually, I did film one little statue with a, I think it is like it's like a baby uh, kind of a putti, and I may have had a penis on it, but it certainly wasn't anything incriminating. There's a lot of garden statues out there with cherubs and things like that. So, <laughs> yeah, the statuary was very cool. He had so many playful statues of kids and adults, you know, riding bikes and doing fun things and cartwheels. And uh, then the shrubbery were also like in the shapes of animals, elephants, giraffes and so forth. But it, it was all very good natured. I don't know that that little statue I'm mentioning even came up at the trial. Accusers. And especially in the documentary um, Leaving Neverland, which we'll, we'll touch on a bit later, but Wade and, and James in that documentary talk about all these different secret hidden rooms in Neverland where Michael had beds and he'd molest kids and things like that. I mean, I, I almost don't even need to ask this question, but like when you were there, um, did you you see any you know nefarious kind of hidden away spaces that looked uh, suspect? No, not at all. I did see there were a lot of uh, nooks and crannies, and uh, they were all built initially by the golf course developer. I, one of the things I had was blueprints of Neverland, and I was possibly going to make some trial exhibits out of them, which I never did. But uh, I think I don't believe the prosecution was able to show that there were there were any secret rooms. You know, there were storage rooms. There's you know, one place, one room he had his safe in. Others he had maybe a special video collection that wasn't anything bad. So there are all types of closets and small rooms and places. But there there was no, nothing that came out at the trial, and they had a ton of people search Neverland unexpectedly. If there was such a thing, I'm sure they would have found it. Mm-hmm. Did you have to film the wine cellar or things that were referenced in the trial specifically? I did film some of the things referenced in the trial. I didn't film the wine cellar. I think I filmed the entrance to it, which, as I recall, is in the game room. Uh, but I, I didn't go down into the wine cellar. The The only place, you know, I, I was given a tour where people go normally, and that's where I went on my tour. I think the only place I was told I couldn't video was uh, Michael's dance studio. 
I'm not sure why it might have been Michael was practicing in there or wasn't available or it wasn't relevant, but uh, that's what comes to mind. He had a lot of computer equipment in there with hard drives of songs he was working on and things like that. So maybe they just wanted to secure it. Oh, that's true. Uh, By the way, I did get in the dance studio in my more recent visit a couple years after he died. And uh, Tom Barrick had like a spotlight pointing to the center of the the dance floor with a a red velvet rope around the spotlight, kind of in memory of Michael. It was was a wonderful way to uh, pay homage to Michael. Larry, in your new documentary, you state that when you took the job, you were really unsure about Michael's guilt or innocence. Was there something that changed your view or helped form your view? Yeah, I guess uh, studying the situation and um, hearing both sides of the issue because Michael's attorneys wanted to certainly be able to know what the other side was going to say and to counter them. Hearing all the facts of the case, there is really nothing damning to show that Michael was guilty. And what there was to show was that Michael was childlike, that he didn't have the best judgment in having people around him or necessarily the best discipline with his help. But um, learning who Michael was, you know, he just was this childlike nature that lived in a cocoon most of his life and uh, didn't know how people were responding to him and didn't know that his behavior would seem odd and bad to some people. I guess that combination of things uh, led me to understand that Michael was innocent and uh, want to help portray it that way. Now, you were actually called to the stand to testify in the trial 2005. How many days did you have to testify for and what was that experience like? Yeah, that was pretty cool. I was pretty nervous about it, partly because the prosecutor, when he put me on the stand, his job was to make me look as bad as he could. (laughs) And not only that, but he questioned me the first, I think I came on just after lunch and he wasn't done with me and then I had to come back the next day. And I knew he had overnight to consult with his experts to see if he could come up with any damning questions or information. And there was, frankly, one thing I I felt a little uncomfortable about him asking me, which he he never did. And, And what that was, was, One of the things, I narrated the video and then I played the alarm test video. Well, in the alarm test video, when I recorded the sound of the alarm going off with my camera over his bed, I had my camera audio mode on automatic voice level or automatic audio level. And I, I did that because when I did a test myself and listened back, that was basically how loud it sounded when I was in the room. But I was afraid that the prosecution would ask me, you know, when you recorded that, did you calibrate it somehow or did you use a, I was asked, did I use a decibel meter to record how loud the alarm was? And I didn't, and it it had come up beforehand and Bob Sanger thought, you know, the decibel meter reading wouldn't mean anything to the jurors. So that's one reason why I didn't use it. But the only thing I had reported to me afterwards that Michael commented on my testimony is he turned to the uh, one of his attorneys and said, I could alone, Larry, my decibel meter. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, but they, they never did ask me about that. Uh, I was there two days when I went the second day. Well, actually, it's kind of a fun first experience. I hadn't seen Michael the whole time I was at Neverland. I was dying to be in one of the attorney meetings with him when they discussed strategy, like I am sometimes with my other clients. I thought this will be fascinating, but they never invited me into any strategy meetings. And I understand. But when I went to testify the first day, I was waiting in the waiting room 
uh, to come on and uh, the, the waiting room for witnesses that they wait in. And I was looking out the window of the door and I saw what looked like a Boy Scout out in the hallway with all these badges and all. I thought, hmm, I wonder what a Boy Scout's doing out there. And then when I looked through the window, it was actually Michael. He, he was in one of his outfits with a lot of uh, kind of military uh, things and uh, Boy Scout type badges. So then I sat out in the hallway because Michael was going to the bathroom and um, they had cleared out the bathroom. And then when he came out of the bathroom, he had to walk by me to go back to the courtroom. And I, I nodded hi. I said, hi, how are you doing? And he nodded, just gave me a very nice smile, hi. And he, I, he didn't necessarily know I was, who I was at that point. And then the second day when I was on the stand waiting for the court to start and Michael was sitting there opposite me, he, he sits opposite all the witnesses. Uh, he gave me a really sweet uh, gesture while I was waiting to start of kind of a namaste, uh, putting his hands together as kind of in a Buddhist salute. And poor guy seemed like he was really stressed, as you know, we can imagine he must have been. You imagine how stressful that would have been for him, you know, feeling so strongly about loving children and helping kids and being accused of doing the exact opposite. That must have really been stressful on him. And then I have one other little Michael story. Another day I came back, I wasn't testifying, but I, I went to the office to drop some some material off to Bob Sanger across the street. And then I went to the courthouse and I, I enjoyed all, you know, all the courthouse action, all the fans out there and the hoopla and the media. I love seeing media. It's just so fascinating to see how they work. And I had to go to the bathroom. I went upstairs to a, a bathroom and just as I was about to walk in, a guard came up to me and said, uh, excuse me, um, are you going to be long in that bath? Are you going to take long time in that bathroom? And I had to think about what I needed to do. And I said, yeah, I might. He said, OK, well, you'll have to find another bathroom. Uh, and it, 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 he was guarding it because Michael had to use it. And he, I guess he made sure that the bathroom was empty when uh, when he when he used it. And then I also went in the room where Michael sat with not in the on the stand at the courthouse. And it was just a tiny little room like seven feet by seven feet and there was a picnic basket of goodies probably that the chefs at Neverland had prepared for him and some ba other bags and private things and just kind of so sad what you know Michael was reduced to sitting in this little waiting room while the whole world staring at him accusing him of awful things and one other Michael story is um when I finished testifying on the second day and I'm leaving the courthouse, a couple of Michael's drivers came up to me and said, uh, would you like a, a ride back to your car? And I said, sure, even though it was just around the corner. So I got in Michael's SUV that he was using and there was a picnic basket in there that they, they, apparently they packed that for him every day. And I was tempted to help myself, but I kept it there for Michael. <laughs> I'm kind of joking. I, I wouldn't have really eaten it. Those are some of my Michael stories. Oh, that's great. Thank you for sharing those memories with us. We we really appreciate that. As you were on the stand narrating the, the footage that you'd captured of Neverland, did you have a chance? I know you mentioned Michael sort of gave you that gesture before, you know, you started. But as you were actually talking, did you get a chance to see what his body language and demeanor was like in the courtroom? It seemed like it was focused centered, following the action, occasionally consulting with the attorneys. One of the uh, people next to him said that uh, he smelled very good. He had some distinct cologne, which I smelled when I was went to Neverland, actually the last after Michael died, because apparently the cologne had spilled in one of the closets where there's wood paneling. That'd be nice for fans to be able to smell that. 
but his demeanor seemed, you know, pretty pretty normal. I felt bad for the guy in that I felt like he had a little too much plastic surgery and he might have been self-conscious about that. I was curious to see what he looks like up front, but a lot of people do. And I know Michael had his father making fun of his nose all his life and maybe got some bad input on how to, how to, what plastic surgery would do, but um, he just looked like a regular guy otherwise. Larry, I'm curious about your interactions with the defence team. What was it like to work with Tom Mesero, Susan Yu, Bob Sanger, Scott Ross, private investigator? Tom Mesero is an incredible a hard worker. He'd, he'd be up late, he'd get up early, very focused. We'd watch the TV screen for hours at a time together as he's telling me where to make video edits and so forth. Uh, very warm and friendly, too. Susan Yu was also the same way. She had two young women working for her. We would go out to lunch some, and um, there's a funny story. We went out to lunch one day, and Tom Messereau is telling us how when he was a student, I think at Yale, one of the Ivy League schools, they would have this thing where people would streak across campus and uh, naked, apparently. And one day he was asked to streak, and so he grabbed a book and streaked across campus and held up the book in front of his genitals area. And uh, one of the uh, the paralegals made a funny joke. Wow, it must have been a big book to cover up <laughs> oh, the air. <laughs> but that was just a joke. <laughs> uh, but Bob Sanger is also very professional, very capable, very warm. I didn't meet Scott Ross. I met another investigator, a large guy with a mustache. You know, they, they were all very friendly, trying to do their best. It's an incredible situation being in the middle of trial because things come up that you don't anticipate and you just have to be prepared with your data and information and strategies and witnesses and all that stuff. And, and turning your attention to the accusers, ultimately, what are your thoughts on the Arvizo family themselves? Yeah, I felt that they were opportunists. Wanted to make some money, wanted to get ahead in the world, wanted to have fun. Uh, I think that's what the, the evidence showed. I didn't see them at the trial, but that's that's my impression. And, you know, and they made claims like they were held hostage at Neverland, which was ridiculous because there was no fence even around Neverland. There was a split rail fence that was like with a gap of three feet that you can just walk through. So, and I saw where they stayed and what they took advantage of. And I can see how kids would take advantage of it if they were in a position to, particularly if they had a mom who was always taking advantage of things. That was my impression of them. And, and I think that comes across as such a strength in your latest documentary. I don't think I've seen another documentary that really makes you understand the headspace of where these guys were at and taking advantage of Michael. I really enjoyed that aspect of your documentary, especially the, you know, the amount of footage you had in there from the, the little film they created to defend Michael and also the police footage, the interview footage of Gavin Arvizo. I didn't actually realize that was in your documentary. The only other place I'd seen that was Leaving Neverland. And part of how I was able to craft it is because I worked with the attorneys and what they what they were saying and their arguments. And and Aphrodite Jones also wrote a book about it. It was a friend of Tom Messero and was around some, and she was also helpful. Yeah. There's a pattern, though, isn't there, around these accusations? If you look as far back as the Chandlers, then the Arvizos, and then now the Robsons and the Safecharks, what, what's your analysis of this? Why, what, what is this pattern? Well, I guess the issue started with when Michael settled with the Chandlers in 93. And I understand why he settled. He thought to get on with his life, he would make more money being on tour than he would 
uh, going to trial and missing his tours. And he was given bad advice. He, sh- he was just told, you should settle. That's what the attorneys are there for, telling him whether to settle or not. But once he settled, then others realized, oh, this is, this could be my payday too. And uh, it's such an easy thing to accuse him of a molestation. You know, Michael didn't have the best advice all the time. He didn't have the best judgment when it came to, you know, how things look to others, even though there's nothing wrong with it. That's my impression of it. Larry, could you share your reaction to this current Leaving Neverland Robson and Safechuck documentary as it unfolded this year? Yeah, well, I, I found it kind of sickening. Um, I avoided watching it at first. I have watched parts of it. I believe they're opportunists too. I can't be sure of anything, but I think it's it's like an awfully long shot that they're telling the truth. I think they're just very good liars, too. Like the Arvizos weren't bad and others have been shown to be opportunists and good liars, too. I mean, if this really had been going on, there would have been a lot of evidence over the years and there wasn't any evidence. So I think that they were just opportunists, too. And that's just kind of how how people are. And what's your opinion of how the media has handled the recent allegations? Yeah, I'm disappointed in it. Yeah, I think they're wrong and it's sad. Although I also have the impression that as time goes on, people will start being more sympathetic to Michael again. Like when these accusations are fresh in people's mind, they may think one way, but then over time they may remember what the kind of guy Michael was, the humanitarian, the great artist, you know, the wonderful person. So I, I believe time will heal, but it remains to be seen. I really hope you're right. I was talking with a friend of mine last night about this. And in my own world, I've seen him being muted pretty heavily. Like, our, I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, the school I work at, I'm a school teacher. Instead of school bells, we have music that plays. We have a big playlist that the teachers can add to. When this Leaving Neverland documentary came out, my school removed all of his music from the school bells. A big grocery chain here in Australia, Coles, on their in-store radio, they don't play him anymore. We've seen clothing lines cancelled. It's devastating for us as fans to see this happen. And I, and I really hope you're right that time turns it around. Yeah, uh, I, I think I will be. And then there also may be something somehow comes across eventually to show how these guys were scammers, some new evidence. I'm just hoping that's the case. We've had a few sort of bombshells even in the last few months, I guess we could say that the train station revelation throwing some of Safe Chuck's testimony under, you know, a big cloud. The building wasn't even there. So, for example, when Oprah was there, there was no train station and that was the pretty much the period Safe Chuck was referring to. And, and you've said that there were quite impressive features of the land where pretty sure Oprah would have featured the train station if it had been there. I think we could all agree that Michael certainly wasn't a child molester. But setting that aside, the sleepovers, those kind of things, you know, hanging around a lot of children, just him and them, and and I guess a lot of people sort of uh, suggest that Michael brought this on himself in a way. To what extent do you think that Michael's behaviour around children was appropriate? Good question. I think it was Taj's nephew saying something like it was inappropriate. I don't think it was inappropriate at all. I really love Michael's childlike nature, and I think an adult has every right to be childlike as long as they don't do anything morally wrong. My kids were in Indian guides, a, a scout thing. We would 
We would be in tents and cabins and all sleep on the floor together, adults and kids. And in other countries, it's done. It's kind of more of a cultural take that it's wrong. I don't think it's inherently wrong. And Michael, who was oblivious to how he came across to people and didn't feel any need to lead the average type of life, I don't see anything inherently wrong with it. In retrospect, it looked bad to a lot of people, and so people judge him by it. Larry, a question we ask every special guest on um, our podcast is, Larry Nimmer, how should Michael be remembered? I think Michael should be remembered as a great artist, songwriter, dancer, singer, great humanitarian, as a great representer of the childlike nature, as a visionary, but also, I guess, maybe as a tragic tale. If you're too trusting, this is what can happen. But I think Michael should be remembered for all the wonderful things he was. Love the answer, Larry. And one thing we'd also like to know is, just for our listeners, where can people find you online, and in particular your website, and your new documentary, Michael Jackson, A Case for Innocence? You can go to my website, nimmer.net, and you'll see a bunch of uh, links to videos. And that's kind of it. (laughs) What is included in the documentary film that you've got available? The current documentary is Michael Jackson, A Case for Innocence. It goes over all the accusers, including the recent accusers, uh, Robson and Safechuck, and tells their stories, what they say, and and the documentary refutes the accusers. And it has a lot of the footage I shot at Neverland showing the different nooks and crannies and some of the history of Michael and why he was thought of the way he was. Thank you very much. It was a fun interview. Send me a link. And, oh, absolutely. Uh, happy to chat again sometime. Happy birthday again, Larry. Oh, thank you. We appreciate your time today and we appreciate what you've been able to contribute to the 2005 case and beyond. We think it's very important and we're happy to share that with our listeners. And again, thank you very much for joining us on the MJ cast. Well, thank you. And keep on Michaeling, everybody. <laughs> That's it. That's it? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Larry. <laughs> So that was a good chat. I, I enjoyed that. Uh, it's a good documentary because I can never get enough of seeing Neverland. And any little chance I get, I will watch that sort of footage because it's an amazing place. And again, we're here to correct the narrative. And they they try and portray in 2005 – And again, this year, Neverland was a place, a nefarious place, a dangerous and and evil place, really. I think it's pretty clear that that is not the case. And that is, you know, guys, reach before you stretch, because that is a stretch and a half. This is not what Neverland is. 
Yeah, I agree. And I also did quite like the documentary. Just a little pro tip for MJ fans out there. It is available to watch for free. I don't know if Larry would like me saying that. But he has added it on his Facebook account, the whole documentary. So I don't know how long he's going to keep it on there for, but there's a link in the show notes. You can go and watch it online for free. If you like it, a lot though you can you know follow the links we'll have as well to his website where you can actually purchase it to download and there are quite a number of special features in the downloadable version i think there's some interviews with tom mesero and different things like that that you can also keep but i quite enjoyed it it's not a style of documentary that i'm used to seeing a lot like there is a lot of voice narration in it but i think it did a good job at summing up the It'd probably be quite a useful thing for somebody who doesn't know a whole lot about them to start with, just to get them used to the, well, here's the big picture before diving deep a little later. What were your thoughts on it, Q? Or for someone that has a very skewed idea of what Neverland was, yeah, I think it would come in handy for that kind of person as well. Yeah. Because it's not a bad, negative, nefarious place. It was a place for healing. It was a place for children to to experience stuff that they can't in real life that might not be a very great life. They might be from, you know, poor families or poor areas and they can't afford to go to a, an amusement park or a zoo, see beautiful plants and lakes and gardens. But then we also need to remember this was a family home. Mm-hmm. A family lived there. This was their home. And it gives that impression definitely. You know, there's the kitchens, the bedrooms, you know, the, the things that you'll find in any house. Sure, it is, like he said, like a Beverly Hills mansion, but it was a family home. So, no, I think um, it's it's a very – we're very grateful that actually we get to see this footage now because if it was only used in a the trial, there was always the chance that then no one else would get to see it. But we are lucky that we do get to see it. As important it was for the the use in the trial to show the jurors the actual context of Neverland, I think we're very lucky that we get to see it ourselves now, years later. Yeah, you're right. It's a great historical source, really, on, on Michael's life as he was alive because all of that footage is contemporaneous. It was, it was being filmed while Michael lived there. If you ever really wondered what Michael's home looked like inside as he was living there, this is the doco for you. Indeed. Well, I guess that's a wrap for our latest Vindication Day special, a day that we commemorate every year for the purpose of education and just recognising the fact that this is the day that Michael went through that trial and was found not guilty on 14 charges. Yeah, absolutely. And whenever I think about the tragedy that was the last decade of Michael's life, I always remind myself and remember that, you know, there was a real victory. Him walking out of that courtroom vindicated, you know, that that was him having his day. And uh, that needs to be on record for the world to know that he was put under the absolute sharpest microscope. Every little aspect of his life was looked at in that trial. And uh, a jury of his peers found that he was not guilty. We, we need to remember that and remind people of that. Especially in this day and age, we've got, you know, this other rubbish that we have to deal with. The sources are out there. There's so many incredible fan initiatives out there that have collated information about all of the trials, all of the allegations. They've got information freely available for you that you can go and research. And if people say something 
to you in error or if they're just ignorant of the facts, then you can actually say, well, here's a source or, well, I've learned this from this source and you might want to go and correct yourself and things like that. So I want to say thanks to all those out there that are doing an amazing job of not only just defending Michael, which, you know, that's what we do naturally, but actually putting in a lot of effort and research and time into getting facts out there and accessible, not only for fans, but for, for other people to find as well. So my gratitude to all those people as I sign off on this episode for our Vindication Day, episode 103. Thanks again to Larry for joining us and to all listeners. So you can find us on podcast apps all around the place. Just search for the MJ cast and we are even on Spotify. If you're on an Apple phone or device, hot tip, podcast app is already on your device. It comes <laughs> preloaded so you don't even have to download another app. It's literally a little purple app. Just search for podcasts on your Apple device and then you can subscribe to our show. We're on social media all over the place as well, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and YouTube. Search for The MJ Cast. You'll find our channel. Our website is themjcast.com. There you can find all of our shows, show notes. If you're using a podcast app, you'll have the show notes as well. So all those links that we spoke about, you can just scroll on down and click directly on the link as you're listening to the show. And we have an email address, themjcast at icloud.com. Jamin. Thank you very much. Thank you, Q. And to all of our listeners, thank you very much for tuning in and listening to another Vindication Day special with the MJ cast. Unfortunately, you would have noticed Charlie Thompson. He's a regular on our Vindication Day specials. Unfortunately, he was unavailable to be on this one. But thank you, Charlie, for submitting a few questions for this show as well. We appreciate that. And uh, to all of our listeners, keep Michaeling. Michael on. <laughs> Jay Cast.